This is Good Friday, as you know, because this is the day we remember how our Lord won us our salvation. He saved us. He saved us starting when we first begin to trust that he has done so and continuing to our death. As the writer of the letter to the Hebrews said, Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, in time of need now and at our ultimate time of need when we die. So why do we approach with boldness? He says, let us approach with boldness or confidence. Why do we do that? Well, he tells us later in the same letter, a passage we didn't read tonight, he says, why we have confidence. He says, um, therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. In other words, our confidence comes from the fact that Jesus has shed his blood for us. He goes on and says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, the curtain. The curtain and the way that Jesus opened it for us tonight. You might have noticed that one detail in the reading from the gospel. Luke tells us that the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And it is this detail that three of the four gospel accounts Remember, because as the writer to Hebrews puts it, that is the basis of our confidence, that because of what Jesus has done, we have access to God, that we have been washed clean in his blood and are now able to enter through the curtain where previously only the high priest could enter and only one day a year. We now have confidence and can go through the curtain like the high priest could do, only the high priest could do before. So hang on to that for a minute. I want to go off on a tangent, and I hope you will indulge me. I have mentioned to several of you that I have enjoyed seeing this movie that came out, the movie Risen. I know some of you have seen it as well. Um, there's a the publicity poster for it. Um, it's the it's a it's a detective story. the The legate has to figure out what happened to the body. And unlike so many faith based movies, I enjoyed it. Faith-based movies are, are kind of all over the place. They can be very good and they can be very bad. I saw in the news yesterday that ABC has canceled this program, Kings and Prophets. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it made it for two episodes before ABC decided to cancel it. Um, it was kind of uh, the Book of Samuel meets um, Game of Thrones, and people stayed away in droves. But perhaps in our generation, at least, the the penultimate, uh, or maybe even the ultimate, uh, faith-based movie was the 2005 movie, The Passion. Um, and uh, uh, here's a picture from that. Some of you may have seen it as well. So uh, the big difference between it and Risen, I think, um, I, I enjoyed Risen more. But uh, The Passion has value, I think, particularly for those of us who don't understand what was involved in a crucifixion. The passion helps us to understand all the blood and gore and pain and violence and brutality that is implicit in a crucifixion. And yet for all of that, for all of the loving attention that the director uh, splattered us with, literally, in the movie, I think he misses the real point 
of the crucifixion. Because as bad as the movie portrayed a crucifixion, the reality was far worse, so much worse that we cannot, no one can appreciate what happened on Good Friday. Let me come at that from this angle. Who was on the cross? Who was on the cross that Friday? I mean, we know the answer. It was Jesus. So who was Jesus? Jesus is the incarnate Son of the living God. So what does that mean? Well, for centuries, the church wrestled with exactly that question. What does it mean that someone is an incarnate Son of the living God? A a man who, who bleeds and dies is also the Son of God. For centuries, the church wrestled with this question. In 325, the church leaders were summoned to a council at Nicaea by the new emperor of Rome, Constantine. He summoned the leaders of the church to a council in Nicaea, and he said, I want you to sort all this stuff out. And so they did. They came out with what is called the the Nicaean Creed, and we're going to read it uh, later in our service tonight. Um, But let me ask you to find your copy... Thank you. Because I want to tell you how they did it. In 325, 325, this is the answer they came up with. They said, we believe in one God, but we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, who was eternally begotten of the Father, and of one being with the Father. So this is the way that they formulated the answer to that question. Based on everything they had studied, um, everything that the apostles had told them and had been passed down, uh, by word of mouth, and everything that they had studied in the scriptures. That's the answer they came up with. So that settled it. Well, actually it didn't. Uh, theologians continued to argue for the next hundred years over exactly what does that mean. And so they came to a new answer, a more a more uh, uh, nuanced answer in 431 in something called the Council of Chalcedon. And it produced a creed of its own, the the... Chalcedonian Creed of 431. And we don't say it in church. Even churches that do creeds regularly don't repeat the Chalcedonian Creed, and I'll explain why. Um, in fact, I've got some quotes from it, and you'll see why. So uh, the first quote is um, explaining who Jesus is. They said that Jesus was truly God and truly man. He was coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and coessential with us according to the manhood. And then they went on, if that wasn't clear enough. They said he was in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, one with two natures. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved, not as though he were parted or divided into two persons. So pretty abstract-sounding stuff here, not easy to make sense of. So I'm going to give you some pictures. These are from, um, these are from a book, uh, uh, Systematic Theology, and um, uh, I've, they were in black and white, but I added some color to make it easier to see what's going on. So the first picture shows 
that uh, God's being is not divided. God is not just like three persons jammed together like uh, conjoined twins or something. God is God is one as well as three. So it's not just three kind of living together. So God is not divided into three separate um, separate beings the way that that picture would suggest. So that's that's one image, one picture that the church discarded. Um, another picture the church discarded is this one: the idea that that when you when you think about God or when you approach God as Father or Son as Holy Spirit, you see that, but behind that is the real essence of God. And the church discarded that for for the very good reason that if Jesus doesn't reveal God. We don't know anything about God. So the church said, well, that can't be right. And, you know, pointed to the appropriate scriptures and so forth. They, they discarded another image as well. This is the image that, that God is the same, but he just looks different from different angles. And they said, no, the Father is truly distinct from the Holy Spirit and from the Son. It's not simply a question of what you're looking at. So they wound up with this picture, which is that there are three distinct persons and the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. So, is that clear now? Okay. All right. The About 200 A.D., a theologian named Tertullian came up with a new word to describe it because there was no word, because there's none, no one can point to anything here on earth and say, it's just like that. So he came up with a new word. He said a triune unity or a trinity. That's where we get our word trinity. It wasn't a word until... Tertullian came up with it. He made up that word because this is a mystery. It's something that is revealed to us by our faith in Scripture, but we ultimately can't quite get there. We can kind of say it's not like this and it's not like that, but we don't know exactly what it is like because there's nothing else like it. So that's one mystery. But there's another mystery. There's yet one more mystery. It is the mystery of who was up on the cross? So this is one answer that the church discarded. They said Jesus up on the cross was not simply two natures that had been jammed together. There were models that uh, some, some theologians had come up with that said that the spirit uh, indwelt Jesus and kind of took over his brain like in a science fiction movie. And so the human body, uh, the brain of the human body was no longer applicable and there was this divine nature that took over Jesus's brain. And, and so they had this model and, and, um, uh, one of the things that came out of the, the Chalcedonian, uh, council is, um, if you came up with a really good heresy, uh, uh, then they would call it a heresy and you'd get it, you'd get your name, it would be named after you. So, uh, Apollinarianism is the heresy that was, that is named, uh, that, uh, is named after Apollinarius. So, um, there haven't been any good ones for about 1200 or 1300 years. So we quit naming them after, after people. But, but, uh, Early early days, still people could could get uh, into the history books by coming up with a bad model. Here's another bad model. It's uh, named after Nestorius. It's called Nestorianism, and it's the idea that there's a human person and there's a divine person, and they're somehow like overlaid or kind of existing in the same unit of of uh, personhood. And uh, the church discarded that. And so the, there's one more model I want to show you, and then I'll get to my point. So here's another model. They said that kind of the human nature. And the divine nature combines somehow into a new nature that we can't quite comprehend. And this is called Eutychianism after Eutychius. And again, we don't remember these names very well, but this is the image that this next one, Chalcedonian Christology is what the Chalcedonian Council came up with. They said, I can't tell you what it's like. I can only tell you what it's not like. They said, there is the human nature 
that is fully human, and there is the divine nature that is fully divine and fully a part of the Godhead. And somehow, they're together. This also is a mystery. So why does the, why do these things matter? Why is this anything more than simply angels dancing on the head of a pin? Some academic pursuit that no one could care about if they weren't cloistered in a monastery for all their life. Why would anyone care about these things? Well, because it's Good Friday. And on Good Friday, we read that Jesus let out a loud cry and he breathed his last. And for whatever reason, Luke did not tell us what he, what he said, but two of the other writers tell us. They tell us he began to quote Psalm 29, uh, 22. And he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said, quoting the psalmist, that God had forsaken him. Psalm 22 reminds us that Jesus took on himself the punishment for our sin, which is separation from God. The wages of sin are death. God cannot abide the presence of sin. So Jesus separated himself from God. I don't know what that was like. I don't know which of those models breaks down when you come to the cross. But somehow, in some profound, mysterious way, that which is inseparable, that which is indivisible, was forsaken. See, it wasn't just the curtain that was ripped apart on Good Friday. It was God. And beyond that, I don't know. It's a mystery. But in some sense, more than just the curtain was ripped into shreds. So, If you're talking to someone and they want to know why does Good Friday matter, what happened at the cross, was it really as gory as in that movie? The answer is it was far worse. It was inexpressibly worse. There's no way we can get our human minds around what happened on the cross. But it was not simply blood and gore. It was catastrophic. It was cosmic. The separation that Christ endured for our sake. Does God love you? That's how much God loves you. What do we do with it? Well, the writer to Hebrews gave us one more thought. He said this. He said, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. As we conclude our service tonight, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith, for he who has promised is faithful.